Tunnel Vision in Digital Transformations, Digital Transformation at Delta Airlines, Change Management Goals and Objectives for 2024 and the Future of IT. These are just a few of the topics we're going to cover here in Episode 156 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberlin. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients reach the third stage of digital transformation. And we're a company that helps clients through their entire digital transformation. So whether you're going through a software selection, trying to define your digital strategy, or whether you're trying to figure out how to plan for an implementation or execute the implementation from a program management or change management perspective, those are all things that Third Stage Consulting can help you with at your organization. So learn more about us at thirdstage-consulting.com. And uh, Third Stage Consulting, by the way, is the sponsor of this podcast. And this podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions. Um, podcast Transformation Ground Control is uh, everything you need to know about digital transformation. We cover all things related to transformation, including people, process, technology, and strategy. And my co-host, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Excited for this conversation. Yeah, likewise, me too. We've got a lot to cover here today. It's going to be a, a great uh, epic episode. We're going to cover uh, some questions from the audience to start. We're going to get into some hot topics as well, a couple different hot topics. One is uh, agility versus tunnel vision in digital transformation and the keys to success in digital transformation. And then we're also going to talk about a case study, a, a digital transformation case study at Delta Airlines, which is a global one of the largest uh, airlines in the world, the Global Airlines. We'll talk about that. And then later in the show, we're going to uh, shift gears and talk about change management. We're going to talk about change management strategies and objectives for 2024 and the things you need to know about change management as you get started on your digital transformation here in 2024. And then we'll also talk about the IT labor shortage in digital transformation um, as part of our 2024 trend series. And that will be uh, a conversation that you're going to have with Fred Hessler from the third stage consulting team, Kyler. So you'll uh, lead that discussion with with us uh, to chat with Fred, who will be on the show later, and uh, look forward to to that. So all that being said, um, what have you got in store in terms of our, our questions uh, here today, the audience questions here today? Absolutely. So these questions, um, if you are new here, we take from Eric's social media channels where you can find at Eric Kimberling and then at Third Stage Consulting Group on any platform that you're um, viewing this on. Or we have our shorts on TikTok um, and Instagram as well. So definitely head over there and place your comment. If you have a question, you can um, just put it in the comments either today or on any of our content. And we pull them each week and bring them to our ground control episodes so that Eric can and answer them and respond to them live. Um, so I have a few questions for you today, Eric. And one, the one I actually want to start with is how about the approach of starting transformations in areas that will most benefit the business? So the transformation can essentially become self-funded from those achieved benefits. 
Um, despite that being easier said than done, that is certainly an interesting approach to keep, especially if you might be a small to mid-sized business that needs the cash flow. So how would you respond to that question? Yeah, I think it's a it's a sound strategy and it, it is a good way to build momentum if you can get high business value out of an area uh, of the business that is sort of the low-hanging fruit or the, I don't want to say the easy answer, but the easier answer to get measurable business value momentum than, than great. The only caveat I throw in is provided that it's not a super high risk endeavor. So in other words, if there's a lot of value, but it's going to be a ton of change and it's going to be very risky and difficult, um, I might not do that first. I might actually start with a part of the business that maybe isn't quite as much business value, but it's a lot less risk um, to the organization as well. So that I would balance the business value with risk, effort, and cost as well, and find that right that right mix. Because the whole idea is you want to you want to build momentum and confidence in the project, so that by the time you get to the other more difficult parts of the project, you've got some quick wins under your belt. Absolutely. And it sounds like it's kind of an it depends type of scenario. And that's a lot of what third stage does is come in and said, is this approach the best for you? Or what approach would be the best for you? And do that kind of cost analysis and, and risk mitigation strategies. So definitely a great question, something to keep in your considerations when looking at your project framework. Yeah, absolutely. So this one um, is looking at your top 10 ERP systems um, YouTube video, which highly recommend. This is top systems for all ERP. You can also download it on our website and I'll throw a QR code up here. It's a free download to kind of read through that. Um, but a lot of times we get feedback around this. This one I am, I'm interested in focusing on, on NetSuite. So the, the response is I don't really agree with Microsoft Dynamics being listed as number one, just because both small and large organizations use it. I was surprised to see open source Odoo so high on the top 10, and I don't really understand why NetSuite fell so much. So that's the piece that I really want to focus on because NetSuite is always a strong system, but it did end up falling a bit. So what are you seeing in the NetSuite marketplace that kind of made you reevaluate its position for the top systems for 2024? Yeah. So if you look at the um, the selection rate, you know, the percentage of the time NetSuite gets selected and, and the percentage of organizations out there that deploy NetSuite, um, NetSuite would actually be a lot higher, uh, should be a lot higher. Um, but, but I think NetSuite, the challenge with the NetSuite has is that it's not the product itself. The product is actually very strong. Um, it's one of the more mature cloud and SaaS solutions out there in the marketplace, especially for small and mid-sized companies. Um, but the challenge that I think that, that we see in the NetSuite ecosystem in the community is that there's, since Oracle bought NetSuite, they've gotten a lot more aggressive at scaling the sales team and, and going after different markets, which is understandable. But in the process, what we've seen is a lot of NetSuite projects are, are struggling because they're they're being oversold or um, they're implementing organizations are relying too much on this concept of suite success and doing sort of an accelerated fast track implementation of NetSuite, which sounds good in theory, but in reality, that often, if not usually, doesn't happen that way. So it, it's more the implementation of NetSuite in the organization struggling to deploy the software that's the challenge not so much the product itself or the company itself um, so that's that's the main reason the main justification we had for the for netsuite falling in the ranking but having said that it's still high up there i mean it's still one of the leading systems out there so we're, we're not trying to be negative on it it's still still one of the best yeah absolutely and i i think this is why um that type 
top 10 list in our other assets, like our 2024 report, which again, I'll pop up on the screen here as a free download. We look at it from the phase zero planning to all the way through of what we call it the third stage. So it's it's not just the implementation or the selection of the system. It's how does how does our clients see it as a successful business tool when they actually do realize all of the benefits um, realization. So that's kind of a different piece of this top 10 list than you typically see um, in software top 10 lists. Yeah, I'd be curious to see from this person that had the questions about the top 10. I'm always curious, well, what, what do you think should be number one, you know, based on mm -hmm. what you know in the marketplace? I'm always just curious. So I'm curious from the audience, what you think the yeah. you know, some of the best systems are out there? Yeah, absolutely. We always love to hear kind of what um, the audience thinks as well. So go ahead and pop that in the comments wherever you're joining from today. And we'll kind of take a little live poll here. So um, speaking of of systems. Our last question today is kind of a career-based question. It says, hello, Eric, I have a question. Let's say I started my career in SAP. How easy is it to switch to Oracle ERP or I'll even add any other system-focused consulting? Yeah. I mean, it's from a technical understanding perspective, it's, you know, it, it can be difficult just because the architectures and the programming language, the configuration tools are so different uh, between different systems. But you know, once you've learned one ERP system, it's easier to learn a second one. In other words, it doesn't take you as much time typically to learn a second ERP system as it took you to learn the first one. So um, from a training perspective, yeah, there's an investment, not as much as you've already made in the system, you know, um, but I'd say, you know, moving, actually switching career-wise, assuming you have training in two different systems, or you've gotten training in a second system from what you were doing before, um, I think it's actually not that difficult or not as difficult as it may sound to make that shift because you've done ERP and you've got some credible experience under, under your belt, even if you just got trained in this new system that you're learning. So I think the understanding of how systems work and the integration and all the stuff that goes into uh, a software deployment, that stuff is invaluable regardless of what system you're talking about. It's just a matter of making sure you understand how the, the new system works. So I think it's... Uh, once you know one, especially if it's a big name, I'd say too, if, you, if you're talking about SAP versus Oracle, I mean, lots of opportunity in both both fields. Same with Microsoft, NetSuite, you know, some of these bigger, well-known names, it's going to be a lot easier to find consulting gigs or roles for yourself uh, in those worlds. Absolutely. And I know we have a huge student audience, which we're very grateful for. I'm going to pop up a, resporting, a supporting resource here, which is a blog Eric actually wrote about why you shouldn't be a consultant. So if you're considering consulting, this is a great opportunity to use that. And as always, shameless plug, if you're interested in joining the third stage team, you can email um, your your information to work at thirdstage-consulting.com. So always great questions um, when we're looking at kind of starting our career, making shifts in our career. And, and speaking of making shifts um, and how to adapt to projects, I know we have a few hot topics that actually focuses on that um, that we'll cover here in just a few minutes, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a couple hot topics we're going to get to here. We're going to talk about tunnel vision in digital transformation, as well as a case study of a digital transformation at Delta Airlines, which was one of the world's biggest airlines. And then later, after we get through the hot topics, we're going to have a discussion around change management strategies for 2024. And then uh, we'll have our next guest later in the show. Uh, Fred Hessler from the third stage consulting team is going to be on talking about the IT labor shortage in digital transformation. That's a, a conversation you're going to guide with him, Kyler. So we'll look forward to having him on the show. So stick around. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. 
When I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. This podcast is everything you need to know about digital transformation. We cover strategy, people, process, technology, and change in general. Um, you can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com, along with uh, past episodes as well at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Uh, the podcast is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting and produced by Major Tom. So be, uh, be sure to check out uh, Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. If you need help with your digital transformation, we are here to help. Um, and we're tech agnostic too. So that's why we've got a tech agnostic podcast here to help help you through your your projects as well. So uh, you've got a couple hot topics in store for us. Kyler, what, what do you have on your mind? Yeah, well, I recently um, read this article that talked about agility versus tunnel vision. We talk a lot about agile approaches versus waterfall or different implementation approaches, but this is kind of more talking about a mindset. So um, this article talks about the need for that delicate balance, which we know in a digital transformation project and really staying committed to those goals, but being flexible enough to adapt to change. You know, it's a it's a very kind of tight rope that we walk. Um, it really emphasizes the importance of staying in tunnel vision, but yet being open to evolving plans when necessary. And the key challenges I wanted to talk to this because that all sounds really good, right, Eric? But it's it's much easier written than done, right? So it discusses looking at um, potential challenges as actual benefits of changing course mid-project, like integrating new approaches or technologies that can kind of shift you out of that focused tunnel vision. Is that something that you've seen work before in kind of real-time examples? Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's uh, it's it's hard because you you need to um, you, you know, you need to be able to pivot and, and adjust however you need to, and, and you want to make sure you're not too narrowly focused on any aspects of the project. I think that's the tricky part of these of digital transformations as general, is it you have to have some level of specialization and focus, but you also have to look at the big picture and the overall um, direction that the project's going, as well as you know how to pivot along the way. You have to be able to take a step back and pull your head up out of the the weeds or out of the details to see when and where you need to pivot. So yeah, I think it's a it's a definitely a valid point. Another key point in this article touches on the resistance of change because of the fear of admitting mistakes from the project team, which adds actually adds to delays um, and creates some toxicity within the culture. How would you respond to that? Because I, I think that's a huge piece of 
of issues when we look at project dynamics, when we come in for restoration or resurrection projects. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's absolutely a, a challenge. And um, that fear of, of failure, it, it creates this sort of a self-preservation um, mentality where, you know, you end up, you get the project team and especially the outside consultants that are trying to protect their revenue base, you know, for a, for a project. You know, you think of these big implementers that have a lot of technical resources on a project, they're going to want to, they're going to want to uh, position themselves in the best light, you know, and, and sort of highlight on the things that they're doing well and maybe downplay some of the mistakes or failure points or whatever. And internal resources do it too, because it's, it's a self-preservation sort of a thing. So you, you really have to have a, you know, an objective independent advisor that can sort of see past that self-preservation and, and help, help you identify where the failure points are. Not, not because you want to blame people or, you know, make people feel bad or anything like that. It's more just because you, you've got to address it. And, and also you have the gift and wisdom and failures of experience, right? Um, that advisor, we always talk about, it's kind of like the insurance pro um, policy for a project because you have their experience of being able to not only rely on instincts, but being able to see like where the red flags come up. Um, because this is a huge challenge to kind of get it right. Um, and make sure that you don't, um, don't run the risk of not only financial failure, but the, the cultural failure and that change fatigue of not wanting to try again. So, um, a very interesting article here. So I want to dive into um, Delta. Obviously, the airlines have had quite the ride through the last couple of years, pun intended. Um, and we actually saw something very positive come out of Delta's digital transformation. Um, it's actually called the bright spots in an uncertain economy. So obviously, we've seen on Delta Airlines, they've been navigating the challenges of labor issues, macroeconomics, and all kinds of different things that have just been their challenge. And usually when we talk about technical failures, we talk about the um, actual routing, customer service, those types of things that are really in the headwinds of awareness in the conversation. But Delta, what they did is they focused on actually um, their partnerships and driving growth on the back end of their business. So they invested in technology upgrades and training to ad address the, the aircraft re repair disruption and supply chain bottlenecks. So the company worked closely with, with certain partners to navigate things like engine repair or maintenance challenges, which is really yet to return to pre-pandemic performance levels. And Delta is adapting by focusing on improving the execution on the back end of the business with its supply chain and really emphasizing the importance of skilled labor in their technical operations. Um, so we have seen some good results in showing signs of recovery from this. Um, so their premium cabin revenue has increased by 15% and it's outpaced the growth from standard coach seats as travelers have been choosing those higher priced seats on their aircrafts to ensure um, that they're getting through any disruption in their travel plans. So I wanted to bring this to you to get your response to that. Of really, they chose to focus, unlike maybe Southwest Airlines, on um, the front end of their business. They focused on the back end. How do they make the operational excellence to ensure that they're able to get their um, customers to where they need to be? Yeah, it's a, that's super interesting. And I was just thinking of Southwest too, as you were saying that, because or or airlines in general, a lot of times they're focused on 
um, the front end revenue generating, the direct customer facing technologies, which is important. You, you know, the more you can, the better job you can do making it easier for people to buy tickets on, on your flight or, um, you know, certainly routing and planning the, the planes to be in the right place at the right time. So you can capture that revenue. Um, that's all important stuff from a technical perspective, but the back end supply chain stuff and asset management, maintenance, repair and operations, all that stuff is really important because that's the biggest cost of, of, uh, airlines is typically the, the capital cost of all these, these assets. But it's interesting to hear you talk about not just cost savings, but revenue generation from as a result of doing a better job on, on this side of it. So it's just a good reminder that when you're looking at new potential improvements or technologies, you want to look at, um, not only the cost savings potentially, but also how that might affect or help your revenue too. Yeah, definitely that full picture approach of the importance of business processes, which I know you'll kind of talk about later in the episode when it comes to change management, all those different things of understanding the people process and technology, which is really our mantra here at Third Stage is looking at it from a holistic point of view. Um, so definitely a, a great case study from Delta and turning to the audience, um, I'm curious to hear your feedback on that. Is focusing on back-end operations really the main priority before choosing a technology? That's my question to answer in the comments, and we'll see kind of what the conversation is. Well, good. That's a great case study. Thanks for sharing that as well as the um, the agility versus tunnel vision discussion too. It's great stuff. Um, well, one thing we haven't really touched on yet, but we're going to dive into in a great amount of detail next, is uh, change management strategies for uh, 2024 and beyond. So if you're planning an ERP implementation and you're trying to figure out change management, what it means, how to build a change strategy into your plan, that's what we're going to talk about here next. And then later in the show, we'll have uh, Fred Hessler from the third stage consulting team on the show. He's going to talk with Kyler about IT labor shortages in digital transformation and what that means to you and how to navigate those shortages. So you'll want to stick around for that one as well. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control. Hi, my name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host here on Transformation Ground Control. And if you haven't already, I want to invite you to buy my new book. It's called The Final Countdown, Strategies to Reach the Third Stage of Digital Transformation. It's my first book. I'm very proud of it. I love this book. And it, it was my attempt to create a summary and a playbook for what it takes to be successful in defining a digital strategy and a roadmap for your organization. So there's a lot of things we can cover when we talk about digital transformation. We talk about a lot of stuff on this show, but I wanted to condense it into a readable sort of a sequential format that made it easy to help define a digital strategy for project teams that is unique to your organization, unique to your goals and objectives. So really uh, hope you'll you'll read it. I hope you enjoy it. Again, it's called The Final Countdown. You can read that book by scanning the QR code right here in front of you, or you can go to thefinalcountdown.com. Um, again, it's it's been an Amazon bestseller since it came out, so I encourage uh, you to check it out and love to hear your views and your comments on it too. So The Final Countdown, my new book, you can go to thefinalcountdown.com or scan the QR code in front of you. Hope you enjoy, and we'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling, Earth Kyla Cheatham. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation strategy, people process, and technology. You can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this podcast is sponsored by 
third stage consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients reach the third stage of digital transformation success. So if you're going through an ERP implementation or digital transformation, or if you need help with program management, change management, software selection, whatever it is, feel free to reach out to me, uh, chat with us about uh, your needs so that we can help you through your, your initiative. And I'd be glad to even just informally brainstorm with you. So be sure to, to reach out. Um, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday, and we are going to do uh, a discussion now uh, with the audience talking about change management strategies for 2024 and beyond. We want to uh, really dive into what change management means, um, how it affects digital transformations, how to build a strategy and plan to help your organization as you're going through a digital or technology initiative, and uh, also take some audience questions too. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation. I think as we go into this new year, as we're, we're building up momentum here in 2024, and we look to our digital transformation initiatives, our ERP initiatives, all that good stuff. Um, one of the things you see is that, you know, you try to figure out how do we, how do we plan for our initiative to be successful and um, how can we make sure that we get the most value uh, out of our initiatives and make sure that we're, we're getting um, the, the projects where we need them to go. And, if you've listened to this podcast before or heard me speak before, you know that a lot of times or most of the time, I'm going to talk about how the keys to the success with these sorts of initiatives has less to do with the technology and more to do with the people side of transformation or the people side of change. And that's why change management is so important. In fact, when we look at failed projects, when we help clients recover from their project failures, or if we're helping assess a project that's off track and we're trying to help them um, course correct and, and get the project back on track, or in some even more extreme cases, uh, when we're hired as expert witnesses for lawsuits, um, which is a, a, one of the practices within our firm. Um, one of the things we find in all those, all three of those situations is that change management is typically one of the root causes for why the project is off track or why the project has failed or is failing. And so that's one of the, one of, if not the most common pattern we see with project failures is there's usually an inordinate amount of effort and and cost and resources dedicated to the technology and building stuff, but there's usually an underinvestment in the people side of change, including the adoption, the communication, um, defining people's roles and responsibilities, um, all sorts of things related to uh, change management. And I'm going to cover some of that here today in terms of uh, defining uh, some of that methodology or, or talking through it um, with you here. Um, before I jump in, though, I'd love to hear from the audience what you think the biggest change issues are in initiatives you've been involved with or maybe that you are involved with right now. Um, love to hear from you in the chat. What um, what are those biggest challenges that you see from a people perspective uh, based on your experience? Is it is it getting to to learn how to use the technology? Is it communicating? Is it alignment? You know, what what is it that you see as the biggest challenge? I'd love to hear your your comments and thoughts here um, again. the instead of having a guest here today, we thought that you guys would be the guest um, here in the audience to to provide some of the the feedback and, and thought leadership that we're, we're going to cover here today. So I'd love to hear that in the in the chat. And um, here's a, already getting some interesting comments. Um, you know, one of the responses to that question is from from Craig on LinkedIn um, says the change saturation is what is the biggest challenge that he's seen in his uh, career. Um, I couldn't agree more. Change saturation is a, is a big deal, especially in this, you know, sort of post COVID world here in the 2020s. Organizations are going through a ton of change as it is. 
And then when you throw a digital or a ERP project on top of change that was already happening, typically you've got a fatigue workforce that's uh, oftentimes doesn't have the brain space or the capacity to to uh, embrace or or dive into the change and, and support the change as, as effectively as they they might otherwise. So change saturation is a real thing, and I think that's a a great point that uh, often gets overlooked. You know, and I think one of the things you have to do as an organization too is recognize when you are experiencing change saturation or change fatigue and not to say you should stop changing because you have to keep moving forward. But instead, what it means is you might recast your plan or define a strategy that accounts for the fact that you've got change saturation or change fatigue. Um, and I think that's where companies oftentimes get into trouble is they take this overly optimistic uh, rose colored glass view of their project. They get these proposals from software vendors or, or technical implementers that are overly optimistic and they assume that they their organization can adapt as fast as what the the outside third parties might suggest and you as an organization have to figure out is that realistic for us given where we are on the change saturation curve so um, great point there um, another interesting response here from daniel on uh, linkedin says that uh, lack of leadership alignment is number one um, and I actually agree with that. I think leadership alignment is a tricky one because if you don't have it, it's really hard to, if not impossible, to succeed. Um, and in the word alignment, I think a lot of times people, it, it's sort of ambiguous or, or people aren't 100% clear what that means. But when we talk about leadership alignment, what we mean is, is the leadership team on the same page in terms of having a clear understanding of not only where the organization is headed, but how this digital or ERP initiative is going to support that direction. And that connection of the dots or that connecting the dots is oftentimes where leadership teams get misaligned because they might, even if they have a clear vision of where the organization is headed, uh, what often ends up happening is they don't agree on or have a realistic understanding of what it's going to take from a digital transformation or ERP software perspective to, to support those, those change initiatives or those goals. And oftentimes even worse, leadership teams don't see how or they don't connect the dots themselves between the digital transformation project and the overall goals and objectives. And when you have that sort of leadership misalignment or disconnect, what ends up happening is the rest of the organization who's responsible for executing on the digital transformation oftentimes um, ends up totally misaligned. So they, so they don't have a clear sense of how to support the project or, or how to execute the project in a way that supports the bigger picture goals and objectives of the organization. So that's why taking the time to make sure that your leadership team is on the same page with not only where you're headed as an organization, which most of the time when we work with clients, the leadership team has a good understanding and pretty strong alignment around the general direction of the company. But where the breakdown happens is when you start to introduce a new ERP system, um, you get into the the mindset of, well, that's that's different. That's a technology initiative that's not necessarily related to our strategic goals and objectives. Um, or if they do have a clear understanding of how the digital or ERP project can support those goals and objectives, um, the details of how, you know, how that digital transformation project will support it oftentimes gets, gets lost. And I'll give you an example. A lot of times when we go into new clients, um, speaking of this whole leadership alignment topic, when we go into new clients, what ends up happening a lot is they'll have a clear vision on the surface of the, the executives. That is the executives will have a clear vision on the surface of what it is they they want to accomplish with the digital transformation so it might be something like 
we want to have a single operating model. We want to consolidate our operations, standardize our operations, act like one company. Uh, we've gone out and acquired a bunch of companies over the years, and we're acting like a bunch of siloed organizations. We want to start acting like one organization. And that that's a very clear vision at a high level. But when it comes to executing on a digital transformation, you have to make sure that the digital that the digital transformation supports that and is aligned with that goal. Um, because what often happens is executives have that vision at the top level, but then you get down to the next layer of the organization that's managing a digital transformation and they go off track. They, they end up doing something different than supporting that common operating model, a standardization example that I'm giving here. Um, and oftentimes it's because, again, the executives don't necessarily get involved enough or they don't connect the dots between that high level strategy and what this digital transformation means. Um, the other thing that happens too is oftentimes, even if even if you get to that point where, in my example, where digital transformation project team understands that standardization is the goal, we want to act like one company, the pushback from the rest of the organization oftentimes overrides that and you end up sort of veering off track if you don't keep uh, that executive involvement um, and sort of oversight on the project. So uh, great point, uh, Daniel, on the lack of leadership alignment. That's a really um, important one that, that uh, oftentimes gets overlooked. And oftentimes, too, a lot of the other change management issues that you experience in a project can be actually be traced back to that root cause, which is you, your organization's not aligned. It's creating all these other symptoms that you're trying to attack from a change management perspective. But if you don't get to that root cause of lack of leadership alignment, uh, that, that's a real problem. So um, that's why we always suggest that if you're in the midst of a of a digital transformation or ERP project and your leadership team is not aligned, then you want to make sure you get aligned because that, that's where um, you know a lot of the root causes um, come from. And if you, if you take the time to get aligned up front, make sure you're all, you're all on the same page, you have clear direction and clear articulation of how this project is going to support the overall goals and objectives, um, that time you take up front is actually going to speed things up a lot more later versus the organizations that just jump right in without the alignment. They just jump in and start implementing technology. That's where that's where organizations get into trouble. Um, some other interesting responses here. Uh, Alex on LinkedIn says process documentation and lack of a user acceptance test. Um, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting one. I think that, that, that sort of touches on a really important thing that, that sort of aligns with, or, uh, builds on the last point we were just talking about with, with executive alignment and leadership alignment, um, along those same lines, you know, part of the, when I think of executive alignment, I also think of clarity of what the future state is going to be. And that ties into process documentation. So not that you, not the executive team. Not that the executive team necessarily needs to be building out process documentation and conducting user acceptance testing, but what they do need to do is have at least some uh, some strong involvement in helping define or at least approving what that future state operational model is going to look like in those future state business processes. And once you have that clarity of vision, obviously you need to document it too, so that you have a blueprint to build the new technology on. What ends up one of the the unhealthy dynamics of digital transformations and ERP projects in general is that you get software vendors that say, don't worry about your process documentation Our, you know, we'll do that for you because our software will sort of determine how your processes are going to operate in that future state. And if you think about business processes as sort of a hierarchy, you've got the high level macro processes all the way down to on the other extreme, all the way down to the, the 
granular detail of what buttons you push, what, uh, you know, menu options you choose, what fields you enter, all that stuff. Um, you know, those are two extremes and the technology is going to help you to find that, that bottom level extreme, the details of how a button gets pushed, what fields you fill out, all that stuff. But there's a million different ways to configure software to can conduct even the simplest business processes. So if you don't have that clarity of vision of what you want your business processes to look like at the higher, at those higher levels, then you end up shooting in the dark and, um, deferring to the software to a fault to where you 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 aren't able to make decisions of what you want your business processes to look like and so you end up to defaulting to whatever you know whatever standard configuration the software vendor is used to or whatever may may or may not work for your organization but um, that's one of the tricky things is you want to make sure you have that uh, clearly defined business processes as a sort of a blueprint to how you're going to deploy and configure technology and ultimately how you're going to test it as well and that should all tie back to your business processes which should then the business processes should also tie back to your your executive leadership and your executive direction and goals and objectives as as an organization. So uh, great, great point there. We're here talking about change strategies for 2024 in your digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, though. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyla Cheatham. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, technology aspects of change. And uh, speaking of change, we are here chatting about change management strategies for 2024 and beyond. Let's jump back into the conversation. Uh, interesting comment here from uh, Logue on YouTube says that uh, worries about the future are the number one concern from a people perspective. And I'd be curious to hear more about what you mean by that. Um, but I think what you mean is that uh, people within the organization worry about the future and uh, what's going to happen in the organization, what's going to happen to their job, um, the sort of fears of the unknown. And what happens a lot, too, is organizations at the beginning of a project see that the employee base and the workforce is pretty excited about the idea of going through a digital transformation or, or new ERP system, especially if you're using really old systems that are broken and inefficient, hard to use, all that stuff. And you're talking about moving to a modern cloud-based technology with a you know real sexy user interface, all that stuff. People can get excited about that. You want to you want to build on that momentum and, and obviously enable that excitement. But what ends up happening inevitably is you start to hit a bunch of headwinds organizationally when you actually get into the implementation. Uh, because now it's not just a vision of excitement and what could be. Now it's getting into the details of how your job is going to change and um, how you're going to be threatened in a lot of ways, especially when you look at some of these new technologies like uh, artificial intelligence and uh, robotic process automation and things that disrupt people's jobs and materially change their jobs. 
even if it's for the better for the organization and even better for that person individually longer term, short term is going to create challenges and headwinds and people do worry. And um, in general, even the, the, the most well-intentioned people within an organization are going to resist change uh, because they either don't understand the future. Um, and that's usually the biggest thing, I, by the way, with organizations is they don't clearly define for the organization and the people in the organization what their future state is. They'll talk about technology all day, but they won't talk about what or articulate for the organization what those people are going to be doing, how their job is going to look. They talk about all these great things like saving time and money, saving, you know, automating processes. But oftentimes what people hear is, well, you're automating the job that I've been doing for the same way for 20 years. So what's going to happen to my job? And if you don't provide that clarity of what's going to happen to their job and how they're going to um, do things differently and get them comfortable with that, then they're going to they're going to resist the change. And that's where where organizations don't think enough about that that piece of it. So worries about the future is a, a great one. Um, this is an interesting comment from uh, Pruthov on LinkedIn. He says cloud ERPs are facing the same challenges as legacy ERPs. Um, I totally agree with that. I, I think that the potential business benefits or potential advantages of cloud ERP over legacy is overstated, in my opinion. I, there certainly is value, of course, in terms of um, infrastructure and cost savings and things like that, uh, consistent updates, things of that nature. But when it comes to actually implementation itself, um, there's really not a big difference. I, I'd say it's a wash, you know, you know, neutral a net neutral uh, advantage of cloud ERP over legacy ERP, because, you know, the good thing with legacy ERP is you could configure it and customize it to a fault. You know, you could, you could tailor it to fit exactly what people wanted. Now with cloud ERP, you've got a lot less flexibility. You're forcing a certain amount of standardization, which makes change more difficult. And again, longer term, that might be the right answer. There might be uh, a ton of ROI in that. And there usually is for organizations, but in the short term, when you're going through the implementation, that's a lot of the same challenges, you know, in terms of how you implement ERP systems and the change management um, aspects of it, as well as a lot of the technical stuff too. You know, when you go through a, a cloud ERP deployment, um, you you still have to do a lot of the same things you had to do with a legacy implementation. So you're not saving a ton of time and money by deploying uh, cloud ERPs. In fact, in some cases, organizations struggle more with cloud ERP implementations than they did with legacy. Um, because of that limited flexibility and some of the other things we talked about. So a uh, great point there. Um, got a couple questions coming in too. Um, so let's shift gears and I'll, I'll actually take some of the questions here from the audience. Um, this is from Kyler on LinkedIn. Kyler says, what was your response to a vendor saying we will handle OCM? Um, great question. We hear this a lot with, with software vendors within our clients where software vendor will will discuss and, and um, pitch their um, change management services. And typically the change management from a software vendor or even a, a big system integrator or technical implementer, um, typically when they talk about change management or when they discuss change management, it's from a, a software training perspective. And if you think about it, that's that makes sense of what they would be good at. They're good at teaching people how to use a technology because they're technologists and they're experts in the technology. Um, and by the way, even in that case, though, they're typically training the trainers within your organization, and then you're responsible, um, the trainers within your own organization are responsible for going out and training. So, um, even within the narrow part of training, um, the software training, the software vendor typically falls short of what 
you know, the, the bigger picture is that's going to be required. Um, not to mention the fact, more importantly, that change management and to be effective in change management requires a lot more than just software training. So in other words, you need to uh, be able to take um, more than just teaching people how to use software. You have to work through all the process changes that are happening just so people understand how their, how their new world is going to look. Uh, what their roles and responsibilities are going to be within those new processes and the technology is more of a capstone you know it's it's the when you get to software training that's usually the capstone that happens shortly before go live but there's a bunch of stuff that leads up to that that needs to get done and, and most organizations skip that other stuff and when they skip that other stuff what happens is you get to end user training and even if you do end user training flawlessly you ex execute it flawlessly what's going to happen if you haven't done other change management stuff is the freak out moments that i call them which is a a semi-technical term, those freak out moments will happen in your end user training. That's when people start to panic and say, oh my gosh, you're completely changing my business processes. Um, this is totally different than the way I do things today. Um, why is this part of my job going away? Why is this part of my job being added to my responsibility? Um, and oftentimes what it does is it creates more anxiety, more fear and doubt um, when you get to that end user training because you haven't done all the legwork leading up to it. And so that's why you have to spend a lot of time before end user training, which is what the software vendors are good at. Someone, which is usually not your software vendor, has to do all that other stuff foundationally to get people ready for the end user training so that the end user training becomes sort of a non-event. It's more of a, a formality of I already understand my process. I already understand my roles and responsibilities. I already had my freak out moments. I worked through my freak out moments. Now I'm just here to learn how the technology you know, at a detail level is going to help me do the things I already know I have to do, um, if that makes sense. So you need to make sure you've got, you know, organizational design and definition of roles and responsibilities, um, a lot of communication um, that leads up. And when I say communication, I'm not talking about just project newsletters and updates on, you know, we're going live in six weeks, go team. It's more targeted communications to make sure people understand what's happening, what the changes are, why the changes are happening, how it's going to affect individuals and work groups within the organization and ultimately what what's in it for what's in it for me you know as as a either an individual and or a work group within an organization so really important stuff to make sure that we um that we complete a complete change that we define and execute a complete change management plan which again is typically not handled by your software vendor software vendor should be involved obviously in the the uh, training piece of it um, but even that isn't enough to execute a full training program. Typically, you need more support than what a software vendor can typically handle. And certainly outside the realm of training, there's a lot more that needs to happen. So um, great question there. There's an interesting question from from Alex on LinkedIn. Alex says, also, when converting from a manual to more automated process, folks losing control or protection of data they previously had in a file cabinet or on their spreadsheet on their desktop or on their desktop. Um, great point. I mean, you, you do... What ends up happening in these sorts of projects that, that's really important to recognize from a sort of a human and organizational psychology perspective is that there's something that in most cases, there's something that someone's losing, even if the net benefit is great. So in other words, um, if I'm an employee that's been at the organization for 25 years and I built a, you know, I sort of built and mastered this elaborate process to manage my world. And it's based on a lot of my tribal knowledge and understanding of how things work around here. 
if you come in and tell me you're going to automate that or you're going to centralize that data, you're going to take away that spreadsheet, you're going to take away or, or you're going to centralize that tribal knowledge that I have in my head right now. What ends up happening is now suddenly I I move from a, you know sort of a, a a position of pride and heroics where I'm making stuff happen. I created this process. Um, the processes, the systems we have are broken, but yet because of my uh, fortitude or my intuition or my strengths, I'm able to execute those processes anyway. Now the the sense of heroics and that. Um, the pride that people have is suddenly at risk because now what, where am I going to take pride and how am I going to be valued by the organization? If you're not so dependent on my tribal knowledge or you're not so dependent on my spreadsheet that I created and mastered and fine tuned over 25 years. So those are the types of things you have to think about is it's not that um, in the case, in the case of me as an example, it's not that I want to sabotage the organization or that I don't want to be a team player. I don't want to support the organization. That's usually not it. It's usually because I, I worry that what you're doing is you're taking away the things that um, I'm I'm good at. Um, so that's something that's really important to, to keep in mind as well. We're here talking about change strategies for 2024 in your digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, though. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, technology aspects of change. And uh, speaking of change, we are here chatting about change management strategies for 2024 and beyond. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's an interesting question. I actually don't know that I'm going to have a good answer for this, but I'd love to turn it to the audience because uh, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, that I haven't heard before. Um, this is from Lalita on YouTube. And Lalita says, hi, all. What impact do you think the digitization or digitalization of companies will have with current and future geopolitical decisions in the short term? And maybe we could broaden that and say, you know, you've got political and geopolitical, um, macroeconomic. There's a lot of external forces that could affect um, decisions in the short term, especially as it relates to digital transformations and ERP implementations. I don't know that I have a good answer. I'd love to hear the audience's uh, questions. I, I noticed, or I'd love to hear the audience's thoughts on that question. Um, so if you've got, you know, some, some opinions on that, I'd love to hear it because I don't know that I have a good answer um, on that, but I do think it's something that's very real, especially with, you know, multiple wars happening in the, in the world right now. Um, economic uncertainty, economic ups and downs within the world labor shortages. There's a lot of these sort of external factors that inevitably will affect and impact uh, digital transformations. I think, you know, one thing I'll say from my perspective that I see 
as the leader of, of our company at third stage is that I think what's happening is a lot of organizations are becoming more um, cautious in how they move forward. You know, right after COVID, when all the lockdowns happened and everything, there was this sort of urgency to move now almost to a fault where companies were just moving really quickly um, without necessarily doing the proper planning and having a, a solid strategy behind it, but they were moving quick. And now what's happening is a lot of that, that urgency has seemed to cool off and, and sort of shifted a bit to where organizations are being more cautious, more uncertain, more hesitant in terms of moving forward with these big projects. And I don't know if it's the change fatigue that we were talking about earlier, because we have gone through a lot of change as a, as a workforce and as a, as a business world and as, as a human race, I should say, in the last three or four years. So it could be that the change fatigue is, is catching up. It could be that uh, spending is slowing down just because companies have spent so much and, and changed so much in the last couple of years. But I'd love to hear your uh, your thoughts on that uh, from the audience here. What, what are your thoughts on how geopolitical things might uh, affect transformations and technology in, in the short term? Here's an interesting uh, comment from Sandeep on YouTube. Sandeep, uh, this is in response to my question earlier about what the most important change or the, the most challenging change dimension is within a, a transformation. Sandeep says that deviating from allocated budgets hampers digital transformation success and midway executive leadership changes disrupt significant digital transformation initiatives. Um, great point there. If you deviate from budget or go over budget or and or have a leadership change, that's going to create uh, problems along the way. Um, I'd also add that a lot of times organizations will have some sort of big, big business change um, along the way where, um, you know, it could be a merger or acquisition or like Sandeep said, you could have executive turnover. Um, you could be, you know, opening a new plant or expanding into a new market. And that's the thing with transformations that you have to be aware of is that you're going to go through this one, two, three or more year initiative. And during that time, your your organization isn't, nor should it stand still. It's not going to stand still while you're going through the project. You're still going to run your business. You're still going to make strategic decisions, and you're gonna you're gonna pivot along the way. And what what's important is that you make sure that your your digital transformation stays aligned with that as things do change, and that you have some buffer within your plan and strategy to account for the fact that some stuff might happen that you're not aware of, whether it's internal dynamics like a. Uh, uh, leadership change or a merger or acquisition, or if it's something external like a macroeconomic change or the geopolitical aspects, wars, things of that nature that we just talked about. Um, so great, great point there. There's a question from Dennis on LinkedIn. Dennis says, how can change management practices focus on employee well-being? And that's a great Point. And I know well-being is sort of, you know, it's more and more, it's becoming more and more important in today's HR and human capital management world. And certainly from a change management perspective, we have to be um, focused on that. You know, one thing I'd say at the risk of potentially oversimplifying is that um, my knee-jerk reaction to this is that if you do change management well, you, you are focusing on their well-being. And if you think about what causes employees, especially during times of change and turmoil, what causes them to not have a high level of well-being is is a lot of the stuff we've been talking about the fear anxiety the stress the chaos the change fatigue um those things undermine employee well-being so if you can you know as, as simple as it may sound if you can stop doing the things that undermine employee well-being that's that's a great first step and that's where most organizations fall short 
is they unintentionally do things or, or I should say they don't do things that are inevitably going to create stress and internal conflict within the organization. So again, if we get back to that example of if we don't do a full change, a full change strategy and full change plan leading up to end user training, when by the time you get to end user training and then your go live, that is not good for employee well-being when they haven't had any sort of time to digest or understand these new processes and why the changes are happening and how the organization is going to be affected or how their jobs are going to be affected by it, um, what their specific roles and responsibilities are, um, being involved in making sure that the system actually works and getting comfortable with it. All those things, if we don't do those things, which most organizations don't, then now we've got a situation where employee well-being is at risk. So I think the biggest thing you can do is just make sure you do the things you need to do to have an effective change strategy. It's not going to make things, you know, it's not going to be the optimal highest peak of well-being because you're going through change and it's going to be difficult for people no matter what. But what you can do is be realistic, first of all, to understand that you're not going to reach that state of utopia anytime soon right after go live. It's going to be somewhat stressful, somewhat chaotic, somewhat uncertain, but you want to minimize that as much as you can. And the way you do that is through through effective change management. So um, great, great uh, question there or, or uh, great question there, Dennis. And one thing I want to share with you too, I'm actually going to share a, a quick slide um, real quick, just as a, as a visual here. It's, this is from a, uh, a change management presentation that I, that, that our team and I will often give during um, different, you know, client situations. And one thing that is interesting and fascinating to me that I've really become somewhat obsessed with over, over recent years of having done change management for so long is that a lot of times when we think of change resistance, people think of sort of that intentional resistance. They think of, they, they're looking for that person that wants to sabotage the project or that's shaking their head and saying, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna learn these new processes. I don't wanna support the change. I don't wanna get involved, that sort of thing. And, and the interesting part of change management, the tricky part of change management and the misleading part of change management is that most people are not like that, I'd say, within most organizations, 95% or more are not like that. They're not trying to sabotage the project. They're not openly against the project. I'd say 95% or more of employees are, that we work with, at least with clients, they, they mean well. They, they want to support the project. They oftentimes are genuinely excited about the project. But where the tricky part happens is it's the unintentional resistance. It's all these little gotchas, these little things that are hard to detect and, and anticipate. And so um, what happens is organizations go into a project. If you think of it as like a, an excitement curve, you go into a project, you start assessing potential technologies. Um, you get alignment and agree on what kind of technology you're going to deploy. You see the vision of how the organization could look in the future. And that curve goes up. You've got a lot of excitement and momentum behind the project, but then things start to drop off. That's, that's as good as it gets. I hate to say it, but it's, it's as good as it gets when you've pick the technology and you, you've got an agreement from the organization that yes, we're going to move forward. We're going to go implement whatever technology or technologies it is. That's usually the peak level of excitement from there. It starts to drop off because now you're getting into the realities and the headwinds of change. You're starting to change processes. You're starting to see how your processes don't fit the technology and how the technology doesn't fit the processes the way you want it, or it's not ideal. That's all normal stuff. So that's when excitement starts to drop and wane. And if you don't manage that, that can tank really fast and that can actually tank the entire project. So you have to look at that unintentional resistance and understand and anticipate that even if people are excited right now on the day we're deciding to move forward with this project, 
I, as an executive, am going to look around, I'm going to see a bunch of excited people, and I'm going to be misled and fooled into thinking that change management is not going to be that important, or it's not going to be that difficult for us. Maybe for other organizations, but I'm looking around at my people right now, they're super excited. They want this change. They understand why we need it. In fact, they're pushing for it. So let's not worry about change management. And that's a huge mistake because it creates this blind spot because it's that unintentional resistance that has yet to come. It's coming later. It's coming during the project. You just don't see it yet. It's But it's like that tip of the iceberg. You see a little, maybe a tiny little bit of resistance. You see that you know occasional person or two that you can tell are openly opposed. They're actually not the problem because they're easier to they're easier to detect. I'd, I'd almost rather have someone who's openly trying to sabotage a project because then you can kind of target your your change efforts a little bit more. But the problem is the underneath the iceberg, there's a huge layer of unknown, unintentional resistance. And that's where it gets back to what I was saying before. People are afraid of what they don't know. They're afraid of the loss and the uncertainty and the things that they don't uh, fully understand in terms of how their jobs are going to change, what the roles are going to look, look like, all that, all that good stuff. So um, there's also not understanding, um, not fully understanding a process and how it works and um, not what's even worse is when an organization says they're going to automate X percent of someone's job, but they haven't figured out or defined what's going to happen with that X percent of the job that got automated. So if 30% of my job is now automated because I don't have to do dual entry or spend all my time looking up data because now I have a system that has it all right in front of me what am I going to do with that time? And if you don't tell me what I'm going to do with that time, I'm going to get nervous because I'm going to think, well, what are you going to do with me? You know, are you going to get rid of me? Do you need me? You know, you start to question your own value to the organization. So um, that under unintentional resistance, the misunderstanding are, are both very important. And then on the far right side of the slide, you see that misalignment is the the other form of, of resistance. And that's where, you know, the, what we talked about before, the executive team is not aligned or the rest of the organization is not aligned with the executive team um, or the future state is not well-defined. We haven't gotten alignment on what our future state business processes are. When you have that level of misalignment, that creates resistance. And it's not because, they, again, not because they, they the employees don't see the value in the, in the project or, or in what's happening with the project, but it's because they don't, they don't understand and, and they're not on the same page and it's not clear to the organization, what, what direction they're going. So, um, all, all important stuff there. Um, so, so, uh, great, great questions here and more continue to come, come in here. We're here talking about change strategies for 2024 in your digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover though. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more transformation ground control. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyla Cheatham. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, technology aspects of change. 
And uh, speaking of change, we are here chatting about change management strategies for 2024 and beyond. Let's jump back into the conversation. Follow-up comment from Susmitha. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Susmitha on LinkedIn says, very true, heading into change with an assumption of intentional resistance also leads to a closed mindset approach to change and lack of listening. And that's a, that's a really good point. I think you know, the key word is listening. I mean, you really have to listen to and dive into an organization and the culture of the organization to understand and recognize where the, the challenges are going to, are going to come. Um, and what we do as a, as a team at third stage, when we're consulting to organizations is even in cases where organizations are saying, yeah, 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 I know change management is important for everyone else, but for us, it's not going to be a big deal because everyone's excited and we don't see anything below the tip of the iceberg. Um, what we do in those cases or any case for that example is we'll do an organizational assessment that doesn't necessarily try to answer the question, is your organization ready for change? Because the answer is mixed. Usually it's yes right now, but you're not going to be, you know, once you get into the change, um, that's not a good enough assessment to, to be able to come out with that. So what we do is we dive into not answering the question of, is your organization ready for change? But we go a la layers deeper to look at what are the things within your culture and your organization that are going to cause resistance to change as the project evolves? So for example, um, if you have a, you know, if you do this change assessment and you find that there's a perceived lack of coordination and communication between departments, um, that is going to create challenges later because now as when you're looking at say an ERP system, you're looking at integrated end to end processes that affect everyone upstream and downstream as well as yourselves. So you have to start to act more integrated and more collaborative and have a better understanding of upstream and downstream uh, processes. So in that case, you might spend more time in the case of the organization that is perceived to have lack of coordination and lack of communication between departments. You might recognize, okay, we need to spend more time up front defining end-to-end -end processes. We, are, we need to do that anyway, right, to define our future state processes so that we have a blueprint to build the technology we're actually gonna spend a little bit more time than we need to for the software vendor to help our team get on the same page. So this is where, again, uh, software vendor proposal and plan versus organizational needs are misaligned. Software vendor doesn't necessarily need you to get on the same page to, to build the software. They just need to know what's the process gonna look like. But you as an organization need to understand how are we gonna integrate our teams? How are we gonna ensure that we everyone's on the same page? And that's gonna take longer than what the software vendor needs. And that's where a delay happens. So right there, you have, you, you have a, a decision you have to make. Do we do what the software vendor says, which is we can do this in a compressed time frame because they just need the answer of what's the business process? Or do we do it the way that's going to take longer? But do we do it the way that helps us as an organization ensure that we address that fact that there's a lack of coordination communication between departments? And by taking a little bit longer on our business process work up front, even though the software vendor didn't need us to, we took a little bit longer, but we're addressing a change management problem and challenge. And those are the types of things you have to think about as you're defining your project plan. Because if you base your project plan based on sort of a myopic view of technology deployment, you're going to end up inevitably with a project plan that's not realistic. It's going to it's going to underestimate the amount of time and money and resource commitment and risk than what is real. And so you have to do this organizational assessment to be able to have a, a pretty decent or a, a um, an effective uh, change strategy there. So here's a interesting question or a comment from William on, on YouTube. 
William says, yes, people are excited about a project until they have to do something they don't like or give up some measure of control. So great comment. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. There's a lot of control that you give up as an employee, you know, especially if you're not part of the core project team. When we're on a, when we're on a project team, you have to think about it from this perspective too. If you or I are, you know, all of us here on this discussion here today, if we're all part of a project team, we have the luxury of being in the, in the driver's seat, you know, we're making decisions, we're, we're heavily involved. So we don't struggle with the same things that the rest of the organization is going to struggle with, because we know what's going on. We've made decisions in many cases, we've made the decisions we've been actively involved. We see the freight train coming, but to employees, they have no idea what's coming. And so you have to sort of overcorrect for that and make sure that you're painfully transparent at times. And it's hard to do because when you're on a project team, you're, you're just heads down trying to get through all these moving parts and all the complexities of a project. Um, but you have to look outward to the rest of the organization to say, you know, we need to get everyone else somewhat caught up to where we are. They're never going to be as comfortable as we are because we're on the project team. We're knee deep in it every day, every hour of our working days is focused on this. Whereas the rest of the organization sort of running their business, doing their day jobs and um, they, they're, they're more likely to be surprised. So that a lot of this is about control. You know, how do you, how do you ensure that people don't feel like they're losing too much control uh, during a project? And as technology changes, by the way, exponentially, as it changes faster and faster, this phenomenon becomes even more important because now technology is changing faster than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But our ability to change as humans has not kept up with the pace of change with technology. And so we have to recognize that and know that, um, you know, our, our organization, especially if we're a mature, well-established organization, a big complex organization, we are just not going to be able to move as fast. We're going to try, you know, we're going to change. It's just going to take us longer than the technology is going to change. So that's a, a important point. Um, I want to come back to the, the, um, you know, the organizational readiness piece and how to, how to anticipate proactively what the potential resistance might be. Um, you know, one of the things we do as I, I started to go down this path, but I didn't really finish the thought cause I got hung up on an, on an example, but you know, we look within an organization when we do an organizational assessment, we're looking for the dimensions of a culture or an organization that are likely to create resistance to change later. So I gave the example a moment ago of the, um, the organization that um, is perceived to not collaborate or communicate across departments. That's one thing we look for. So we look at communication style of an organization. We look at uh, leadership style. We look at perceptions of leadership. We look at accountability. You know, what are people's perceptions of how accountable or not uh, people hold each other? Um, we look at people's perception of leadership. So what do people think of the leadership team? And so we're quantitatively and qualitatively measuring all these different dimensions of an organization. And inevitably what happens as an output is you get results from that assessment, quantitative and qualitatively, that um, leads you down a path of saying, okay, these are the things that are likely to cause change. These are the sort of the root causes that we know are gonna be a challenge or that we can start to address now so that we can hopefully anticipate and overcome some of those changes before they they actually materialize. So um, that's that's something that uh, is worth noting too, is you want to make sure that, um, that that you have that that piece of it piece of it addressed. Um, and then when you once you've done that too, by the way, once you've done the um, organizational assessment, then what you do is you create a plan that's built on the results of that 
of that assessment. So um, those are those are just a few sort of add on points I wanted to um, to address there uh, along those lines too. I also want to show you, you know, just sort of rounding out this whole picture of what change management is and the things that you should be doing uh, to address change management. Um, this is a, a slide just looking through sort of the change management objectives and the things that you should accomplish or do as part of a change management effort to make it successful. And this is not a complete list. There's other things that you want to make sure you do within this, but these are some of the, the high level dimensions that we want to make sure we address. So here's where we look at, um, you know, organizational readiness is what I was just talking about at the top left. We talked about alignment of executives and stakeholders. Um, I'm just kind of moving top row left to right and I'll move, I won't go through everything, but sort of work our way down. Um, so we talked about assessing organizational readiness, aligning executives and stakeholders. Um, we also want to mobilize internal change agents. And those are the people that are going to actually go back to the organization and start to communicate changes and do the two-way communication, uh, capture concerns from the organization, share what the changes are. And usually those change agents are part of the team. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, shoulder to shoulder with the frontline people. And so they, they become the people that are sort of the conduit or the connection between the project team and the change, the core change management team and the rest of the organization. So they're the ones that can sort of speak the language of both the project team and the, the day-to-day uh, frontline employees. Um, you want to develop and execute a communications plan, uh, assess and deploy change impacts. You know, that's a big deal. You know, when you look at how someone's job is going to change, how a business process is going to change, you want to define what the change impacts are and start to communicate that as soon as you can so that you can, again, work through those freak out moments now. If your go live is, say, you know, nine months from now and you can start to get people to freak out and work through it now, you might as well do it now instead of waiting eight months um, right before go live, start working through that now. So that by the time you get to end user training, they've already freaked out. They've calmed down. They kind of get it. They understand. Now it's just a matter of showing me how to use the technology to do the things you already told me I'm going to do. So, um, that's, that's part of what the change impacts are and what's so important there. Um, you want to des design and deploy, uh, organizational changes. Um, and, and a lot of times too, by the way, you start to make process and organizational changes that you don't need to wait till go live. If you can start sort of spoon feeding and, and incrementally implementing process changes, procedural changes, organizational changes, start to shift roles around that sort of thing. If you can do that now while you're implementing, that's ideal because then you're, you're, you're sort of speeding up the change management and you're not waiting until day one of go live to spring all those changes all at once on everyone. So you can design and deploy organizational changes throughout the implementation. That's another sort of parallel work stream that um, can actually speed things up quite a bit later on. Um, so the, actually both those points, the organizational changes and the business process improvements, you can be doing those, those things early on. Um, anything you do to anything you can do to build internal centers of excellence, you know, to support the project makes you less dependent on the, the technology vendors and that sort of thing. That's, that's super important too. Um, in one of the other things that you'll see here is customizing ERP software training. So if you're deploying ERP software, any technology, you want to customize that training for your organization. Often. Most of the time, most software vendors don't have time or the capacity or resources to create tailored training materials by industry and by, you know, different types of configurations and things of that nature. So it's incumbent on you, the project team, to customize that training. And typically that is not included in a software vendor's proposal. Usually they're going to say, okay, we've got our boilerplate training materials. We're going to come train your team. 
your team's going to go sort of translate that into your operational reality and go do it. Well, that takes a lot of time to customize that training so that you're, you know, if you're doing a training scenario, you don't, in, in let's just say you manufacture, you know, high tech um, semiconductors and, but the boilerplate training materials are using, you know, building a bicycle or, you know, building a widget as the example in the training material, that's not going to make sense to your organization. You need to see how you're going to build semiconductors and all the stuff that goes into that. Um, and in specific to how you're configuring that software and deploying that software and using that software. So customizing ERP software training is one of those uh, really big hidden costs. And it's a really big part of the hidden iceberg of software implementation, time, cost, resource, and risk. Um, so that's a really important one. Um, and then uh, the last thing I'll say on this slide is the bottom few boxes are about sort of that implementation and post-implementation where you focus on benefits realization and how to make sure that you are getting the most value out of the organization because too often uh, organizations um, you sort of stop and go live. They they stop, they, they did the training, they, they make sure that um, everyone's passed the training or whatever, make sure that people are actually able to survive and do their jobs and then they move on to the next phase of the project. And what's really important is to recognize that you're not gonna get optimal business benefits on day one or even day 30 or day 60. It's usually gonna take you know, several weeks or months to get people up to that uh, optimal level, not only because it takes them time to learn the system and get used to it, but also because you're going to want to make changes post-implementation. You're going to identify those things that weren't ideal during implementation. You might need to reconfigure some stuff. You might need to integrate some things that weren't integrated. You might need to clean up data. You might need to retrain people, you know, do some refresher training, redefine a process, whatever. There's all these different things that you need to be doing. And that's just part of the normal process. We, you hope to work through most of that but if you can uh, do that earlier on, or or do that as is part of your go live strategy, that's going to be that's going to be super important. Here's a, a follow up question from a, um, a thread we were talking about earlier. We were talking about uh, legacy versus cloud ERP, and this is from Eduardo on LinkedIn. So Eduardo says, uh, if they can't handle legacy ERP, what difference does it make with cloud ERP? I agree. If 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 you had trouble, you as an organization didn't do well in your legacy ERP implementation, uh, you can't, nor should you assume that a cloud ERP is going to be easier if you do things the same way you did with a legacy system. You're going to have to, you know, step up your game, if you will, um, to be more effective in your, in your implementation, because it's a lot of the same. If you think about it, the process and people challenges are all the same. Uh, with cloud, the only difference is the way you deploy the technology is a little bit more, it's, it's a lot more modern, it's a little bit easier. So, um, so that's, something to keep in mind too. follow up to the the slide I just reviewed on the change management objectives. This is from Shilpi on LinkedIn. Shilpi says, love this comprehensive list of change management object objectives. One other thing I'd add in addition to change agents and train the trainers is a community of practice. So um, great point. I don't know if that if you mean like center of excellence or a, a sort of that internal competency around certain processes or technologies. I'd be curious to see if you know, Shilpio is a follow-up. If you don't mind, let me know what you mean by that or, or clarifying if, you, if I'm off base in terms of what you're thinking. But I think it's a great point that uh, you do want to build that center of excellence and ensure that you've got um, you've got that that address as, as part of the part of your project. Here's a question again uh, from Kyler on LinkedIn. Um, this is what about an executive team that isn't bought into the need for change management initiatives within a technical project? And that's a great 
question. And that is a difficult one because it's hard to change the mind of, of an executive team, especially if they haven't been through a project like this before. If they've been through a project like this before, chances are pretty high they're going to recognize the need for change management. But it's the organization and the executive team that is not familiar with how these projects typically work. That's the scary part because it's hard to convince them, especially when they're looking around, seeing something totally different than what they might be hearing from someone like me or our team. So like I mentioned before, if you look around, your employees are all excited, they're on board, they're ready to go. It's hard if you've never been through it to see like, where's the risk? What am I missing here? I hear this consultant doing a live discussion talking about it, but I'm not seeing it in my organization. And so that's where that change readiness assessment comes in is if you can do that change readiness assessment, which is a, a very low cost, low effort, high value sort of a, a initiative. When you do that organizational assessment, that's typically where you'll find the results and the sort of the, the case for why change management is important. And more importantly, how specifically change management can and should be deployed within your organization. I think the problem with change management is it's such a broad, fuzzy word that a lot of executives don't fully understand what it means. So if you can redefine change management and define it in a way that's specific to your organization and what your needs are and what your culture is and your risk tolerance and all that stuff, then then suddenly you're speaking the language of of your of your uh, executive team. So um, that that's a great a great point. And so the org readiness assessment is probably the best way or one of the best ways of um, of making sure that your executives understand uh, the important the importance of change. And of course, you know, just educating them with content like this, discussions like this will help. Um, but if they're not listening to this sort of content to the podcast like this, or looking at our YouTube channels or my YouTube channel or uh, any of the other content we put out there, um, then it's you're not gonna you're not gonna necessarily get their their buy in. Yeah, here's a Shilpi's follow up was an extension of the the center of excellence was her sort of clarification of what she meant by I forgot what the word was she used it was a knowledge center I think is what the word was but I think we were uh, or a community of practice is the word she used originally and uh, it sounds like she's talking about uh, an extension of the center of excellence so um, yeah I think anything you, any whether whether you call it center of excellence or community of practice or whatever I think the important thing from from uh, the perspective of planning for this is to make sure that you are focused on building internal competencies. That's really what we're talking about here is uh, how to, how to build those internal competencies. All right. Good stuff. Thank you to the audience for the great questions and comments. And uh, hopefully that was helpful to everyone as we sort of work through the different dimensions of change management. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to uh, cover some additional follow-ups from that discussion here in just a moment. And then later in the show, we're also going to have Fred Hessler. So be sure to stick around after we take a break here. We'll have Fred on the show talking about the IT labor shortage and digital transformation. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Well, we're living in, let me tell you. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. 
welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, and it's sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformations. And that is the company that uh, Kyler and myself both work for. So thank you for being here today. So Kyler, we just had this discussion with the audience about change management. What were some of your thoughts from that discussion? I mean, well, amazing discussion and kudos to you and the audience. Um, We really covered so much when it comes to change management as a discipline. I would say my my recommendation is if you found a topic interesting from that conversation, I guarantee you there's, you know, five more videos that do a deep dive on that topic, whether it's business process management, whether it's executive alignment or um, emotional intelligence, those types of different things that we kind of talked through. Um, definitely head over to our YouTube channel, Third Stage Consulting Group, or Eric's YouTube channel and just search for what you're looking for. Um, You can always ping me on LinkedIn if you're looking for something and I can help you find it. Um, So thank you so much for that great conversation. I I think the thing that's, that's so interesting to me about that is when we have a conversation about change management, there's there's so much energy and prevalence around it. When there used to be, it it evolved to be that. So I'm I'm wondering if if we almost need to bring technology a little bit back into the conversation <laughs> and taper some of of the focus on change or maybe some more tactical approaches. What are what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you ensure that your change is actually a strategy as opposed to just kind of talking about soft skills? Yeah, great point. And, I, and that's one thing we didn't really get into in the conversation. Um, there was the question that came up from someone that was talking, I think it might've been you actually, that brought up the question around um, the what to do if, you're, if executives don't see the need for change management or don't they don't recognize why, why you need it. Was that, that was you that asked that, right? Yeah, I asked, I, I asked that. And then the change KPIs question, um, mostly just to give you know our, our audience some actionable tactics of like, this was such a great conversation, but what do we do next to create you know change and actually move the needle in our organization? Yeah, and that's that's where I was going with it is that, that oftentimes when you when you think about executives and why they don't support change management, oftentimes it's what I mentioned in the discussion, which is they think that their team is excited on board and change won't be a problem. That's that's a true dynamic. But the other dimension that we didn't talk about was that change management is oftentimes perceived to be a, a pretty uh, touchy feely, soft sort of a thing. And that's why I, I put up the slide that shows the the change objectives. You know, some of the different tactics and objectives that can be used to to deploy change management because it's not just about making people feel good or or you know celebrating wins which is important it's about tangible business results and making sure that you get the business value out of the investment that you're looking for and, and most importantly that you're mitigating risk too you know so if you're an auditor or a cfo or someone like that i mean you should or a legal chief legal counsel um internally you should be very concerned about change management and looking at it as something that will mitigate mitigate that risk so I think you're right. You, we have to shift the mindset of change management from being this touchy-feely, nice to have to a, a core uh, critical competency. And that's a, that's a great sort of summary of that discussion. We didn't blatantly or explicitly state that in the, in the previous segment, but I think it's a, an important point to make. 
Absolutely. And I mean, that executive alignment piece is so critical too. Um, and just understanding the importance of the direction of the project. So highly recommend um, our change management resource, which I'll pop up on the screen here, which is our change management playbook. It really kind of does a deeper dive into everything that Eric talked about. So you can actually look at how do you ensure, because as a project team, do you even know your executive team is aligned? Like what are the actual steps to, um, to showcase that? So that's our our goal is to really give you those resources in order to see our it depends type of mantra that we have here. What does it mean for your organization? How are you creating an impact in achieving your goals? Um, so I think that was a great discussion. Lots of threads that we can absolutely follow up with that on there. Um, and definitely always want to hear from our audience when you go through assets like this. What did you find valuable as we're always tweaking our content to be most impactful? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very good stuff. Well, well, thanks for your participation in that and you, the great questions for you and the audience too. The audience had some really good ones. So thank you for that. Um, and we're going to uh, continue the podcast episode here. Uh, after a quick break, we're going to continue our 2024 trends series by talking about the IT labor shortage in digital transformation. Uh, Kyler, you're going to lead us through a discussion with Fred Hessler from the third stage consulting team uh, to talk about that. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also look at or listen to past episodes of Transformation Ground Control at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So be sure to check out all 155 episodes that you might have missed. Uh, not all at once, but uh, you, you might have to cherry pick some because they are pretty long and there's a lot of them. But you can go back and see all the, all the past episodes at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent tech agnostic consulting firm that can help your digital transformation reach the third stage of digital transformation success. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, email, YouTube, wherever I've, I've included my contact information below uh, if you'd like to reach out to chat about how we can help with your initiative. So, uh, Kyler, you've had a chance or you're going to have a chance here to sit down with uh, Fred Hessler from the Third Stage Consulting team to talk about IT labor shortages in digital transformation. So I'll turn it over to you, Kyler. Excellent. Thanks, Eric. Um, and welcome, Fred. Let's get into it. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kyler. Uh, mostly a third stage who I've been with for about a year and a half now. Uh, I mostly work on expert witness cases now when, unfortunately, technology projects go very, very badly and wind up in litigation. And we're often engaged to uh, render expert witness opinions uh, in those cases, mostly what I do now. But uh, prior to that, um, I had a career of about 38 years in various roles in information technology. About the last 29 years were spent with different consulting firms and a variety of roles. I've done pretty much everything in consulting you can do. 
uh, from being a management consultant, a direct salesperson, a pre-sales engineer, practice manager, project manager, BA, technical writer, software development, lots of things uh, over the course of my career. Well, you have a wealth of experience, um, and it's always my favorite to bring in our expert witness team because you really see the forefront of what can go wrong, you know, kind of the polarization of what happens with a digital transformation failure. So I think we can learn a lot from that. Um, as we always talk about here on our podcast and our videos, we talk a lot about failure, but mostly we do that so that we can source independent and technology agnostic insights on how to kind of buck that trend. Um, so that's our, our mission here. So today, as part of our 2024 series, we're talking about labor shortage um, and kind of the current state of the IT labor market from a variety of different standpoints we'll get in today. But I want to start with just kind of that broad question of, can you really describe the current state of the IT labor market and what has really contributed to this talent gap we see talked about so much? Sure. Uh, well, the current state of the market, I think it still remains pretty tight as it always is for technical talent. We had in 2023 a number of pretty well publicized uh, layoffs in large technology firms and so on. That seems mostly attributable from the analysts I've read to uh, kind of exuberance over hiring uh, during the pandemic uh, period. Uh, I also think there is sort of some general belt tightening uh, in the corporate world in 2023 uh, with recessionary fears. I say that mostly because there were a lot of recruiters I saw laid off in 2023. And that's always a pretty reliable canary in the coal mine uh, that says that uh, the business world is uh, fearful of a recession and assuming that they're not going to be doing much hiring. Um, so with that, though, uh, again, every analyst I've read on the topic thinks that job growth in IT is going to remain very robust uh, for the foreseeable future compared to many other industries. Uh, particularly in certain subfields that are always in great demand. Security is one, of course. Um, data science and analytics, uh, people who are excellent at that are in pretty, uh, pretty short supply. Um, cloud engineers, uh, even, even software development uh, professionals, I think there's going to be still robust job growth uh, in that area in demand. In terms of what's what causes this uh, persistent shortage of talent we see uh, in, in the IT industry, some of it happens when we have um, technical trends or fads uh, that suddenly attract a great deal of um, interest in the business community. And the expertise pool just isn't there uh, in, in our industry to address it. So you'll see, um, you'll see shortages in that way that are kind of driven by those events. But uh, I actually think that a lot of the shortage is just endemic in our industry and probably permanent, actually. Um, it, it takes certain aptitudes to be really good uh, at technology, uh, to work successfully in our business. And those aptitudes are just, in my opinion, not widely distributed in the population. There's just sort of an organic shortage of people who are wired up uh, to be very good technologists. And, uh, you know, you can always train skills in a person. You can't train aptitudes, though. You know, people are oriented certain ways. Um and I look at it this way, uh, you know, IT jobs tend to be pretty well compensated, right? And um, if there was an infinite number of people in the general population uh, able to fill those roles, we'd see a flood of new applicants coming into the industry and solving that shortage for us. So we just never see that. We have this persistent shortage. And 
I just think this some amount of this talent gap is just always going to be with us. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective, um, most certainly, uh, of kind of understanding the aptitude versus skill sets uh, kind of perspective around what does it mean to be successful in the IT world. So in, in kind of building upon that, what is the impact of an IT shortage within the company or the business when looking at implementing new technology? I think this labor shortage uh, limits uh, businesses from fully exploiting uh, their investments in technology and sort of getting to the uh, the fun stuff, uh, right? There'll be the results of, uh, of these investments and so on. Uh, for example, it's difficult for businesses to really exploit data science and analytics to better inform decision making in the business in any sort of uh, consistent or programmatic way. Uh, that becomes part of their culture, right? Secondly, uh, I think it limits the energy that businesses have to apply to developing tactical solutions like workflows or little departmental applications. And uh, ironically, those those sort of micro solutions, those bring outsized impact uh, dollar for dollar. And they can really be quite beneficial in um, in improving efficiency and making the employee experience a lot more pleasant. Yeah, interesting. And I I think those solutions are something that really need to start at the leadership level and being able to do things like really evaluate the current state or understand that awareness. You know, that can be a gap that we see all the time. A lot of times in our work um, is just that lack of understanding. Um, so I think that impact on the business is is so important, as you you talked about. Well, so much so much energy is is put into keeping the lights on sort of activities, right? Or implementations, right? Yeah. Uh, of technologies rather than exploitation uh, of those technologies. And I, I think you're right, though, from a leadership perspective, uh, just making it a priority that a certain amount of energy workflows matter, right? They they can really help <laughs> in, yeah. in efficiency and help a lot of um, low value work from being performed in the organization, frustrating people. So, yeah, making that a priority has to come from leadership. Absolutely. And a strong CIO. And I'll just give our audience, as I always like to do that supporting content, is we have kind of the role of the CIO in a variety of different videos on our YouTube channel that I highly recommend you looking at because that is one trend in the space that we we see as something that is really moving and evolving. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that role has changed a lot uh, over the years and become much more broadly. Um, uh, the, the responsibilities have become much more broad. So Fred, that is great insight as we kind of talk through what does the future state look like. So speaking of kind of future state, are there any kind of emerging trends or even systems in the IT sector that has helped exacerbate or address this talent gap? I don't really see any trends that have had a significant impact on the presence or size of the talent gap. I mean, it's possible based on the layoffs last year that there might be some discouraged workers out there who have left the industry, you know, change career. I don't think it's probably very many. Um, As I said, I really think this talent shortage is endemic and, and probably permanent. Yeah. Interesting. And so we take on a lot of those um, support roles a lot of times when specifically when you're looking at a new technology implementation. So what are your thoughts on using independent or technology agnostic consultants or even managed services to fill this gap from an outside perspective? As a consultant, I encourage businesses to spend lavishly on consultants. <laughs> I think that's a good policy that everyone should adopt. Uh, 
sure. Uh, consultants and managed services providers they can they can fill gaps in in, in an organization's uh, um, IT skills portfolio, absolutely. But uh, remember that they are um, consultancies and managed services providers are recruiting from the same population <laughs> that uh, that companies are. So that doesn't really increase the uh, the, the 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 working the 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 pool of labor in general. If you're considering um, engaging a managed services provider, or even a consulting firm, on a, on a long-term basis, uh, there's a number of considerations. I think uh, it's wise uh, to keep in mind uh, to ensure you have a good experience and, and get what you're paying for. the The biggest one to me, and this is especially true of managed services providers, is to just be honest with yourself about what kind of experience you're looking for in your company. If you're looking for a relatively low value, inexpensive. Um, transactional sort of relationship, then there's certain procurement strategies you're going to use uh, to get that. If you're looking for more of a white glove experience, um, more high value, high service experience, then there are different procurement strategies that you're going to that you're going to use to, to get that experience. It's important to realize, though, that you are not going to get the second one for the price of the first one, right? Uh, and, and too many companies uh, think they will, or they fall prey to sales pitches from providers that say they will, and you're simply not going to do that. So it's just very important to be honest with yourself about what you need uh, and want from a managed services provider and what you're willing to pay for for that. Another consideration would be um, it's just really critical to know exactly what you want the provider to do for you, right, to define that scope very carefully. Um, don't leave the provider <laughs> to, to define the scope of that. Um, not just because they're likely to use it as an opportunity to uh, expand their territory in your organization and increase revenue, and they probably will do that, but it's also uh, just not a good recipe for success for them, right? Um, they're not likely to be effective for you because they won't have a clear sense of their responsibilities and they won't be able to measure their own performance. So vague scope and uh, uh, responsibility boundaries really aren't fair to the provider either. Absolutely. I think that is a hundred percent so true. And that's, you know, the work that we do here is really technology independent and agnostic in the point that our only goal and contractually, our only relationship is with the client to achieve the success in, in which they're looking for. And that's really important to consider when looking at these partners, you know, is it a culture match as much as a technical match? Um, is there a trust in that relationship? And, you know, is there an awareness of the executive team or the project sponsor to ensure that they really understand the needs and requirements of the organization? That's critical to not have kind of that um, perpetual scope creep that we see a lot of times with that vendor lock-in. That's a huge piece of the industry and a main failure point, um, to your point. It is. And, and your point about the technology agnosticism is very, very important. Um, we have seen cases where uh, clients have allowed vendors to essentially choose the technology for them, right? And it's just not uh, that that vendor can have the best intentions in the world, but obviously they have a rooting interest in, in a certain technology being selected or them being selected for implementation purposes and so on. It's, it's really not a fair position to put them in. Uh, having a technology agnostic advisor uh, in that role is probably going to produce a better result for everyone. Yeah, so it sounds like your recommendation is, yes, you can consider outside consultants and managed services, but the ownership of the project and the strategy really needs to stay internal or at least a partner approach. There needs to be involvement by the business, it sounds like. 
Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to take ownership for that. Uh, another thing uh, I'll say is that, you know, we're talking about um, considerations when you're looking to hire a managed services provider, but I'll talk about one that's important when you already have one on board, right? And and we unfortunately see a lot of this in the, in the uh, expert witness um, practice. Um, you have to know the contract uh, with that uh, uh, with that vendor, and you have to follow the um, the avenues set of, set forth in that contract for raising your hand when something goes wrong. Right? Very few projects, very few relationships are perfect. Right? And um, we see too often uh, companies. Uh, th- there are always in these contracts designated ways to raise a concern. Uh, to say to the vendor, you didn't do what you said you're going to do, or I'm not satisfied with what you do here. There are always escalation paths set up in these contracts. And it's amazing how clients don't follow them, probably because they don't want to poison the relationship, right, and make it acrimonious. But we know that um, if things go really, really bad and it winds up in litigation, you're not going to get credit for that from their attorneys. Their attorneys are immediately going to say, well, when did you say you were dissatisfied? I have no information here saying you followed the escalation path that you formally put us on a performance improvement plan that you expressed dissatisfaction any way whatsoever. We're here with Kyler and Fred from the Third Stage Consulting team talking about the IT labor shortage and digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode, you can find a link to uh, take you to the page that'll allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the guide to organizational change management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 156. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This podcast is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that can help you reach your third stage of digital transformation success. So feel free to reach out to me if you'd like to chat about your project and how we might be able to help. Um, so we're here with Kyler and Fred talking about the IT labor shortage in digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, so let's jump back into it. I think that I've found a passion for contractual and not only vendor agreements because of our content around that a lot of times our partner at Taft Law does um, for our, our the importance of understanding a contract. Because you, you would be shocked. Well, you probably wouldn't, but our audience would be shocked to find the amount of clients, humongous companies that don't even know where their contracts are. So that's the importance of having that independent lens when you engage in this. That can be a huge, huge failure point is because you didn't understand what was going on in the contract. So uh, 
I'm going to give you a quick link here. I'm going to pop it up on the screen um, to Marcus Harris. And he does a whole keynote for our audience about the importance of understanding your contracts and really breaking that down. Um, so you can scan it. If you're listening in an audio format, it's in the description notes for the episode. Um, but Fred, I kind of want to dig into the importance of references and really understanding what does that look like from engaging a partner on this level? Sure. I, I've always felt that you should collect as many references as you can uh, on, on a prospective partner. They're obviously going to give you references. Um, those are going to obviously be very positive references, right? Uh, so one tactic you can use is to ask those references if they know other organizations using the technology or the vendor and ask them for, for their opinions. Contact them directly and ask them for their opinions as well. Um, if you belong to an industry association or a local technology organization or, or just even uh, using your LinkedIn contacts, uh, use those contacts to find other people who have experiences with that vendor or that, uh, or that software provider. What you're trying to do here is build as big a database of um, impressions about this potential partner as you want. And you want that to be holistic. How did they perform? Did they meet budget? What's their culture like? You know, how do they handle, how do they handle errors, right? When there's a problem, how do they address it? Those things are going to be really important to you because it's going to be long-term relationships you're hoping to have with this organization. Um, and remember also, uh, you're, you're looking to, to get a sense of consensus around this provider, this potential partner, not perfection, right? Every, every provider, even very good providers, have some bad projects uh, in their past. So if you, you hear about one bad project and 20 good ones, that's actually a pretty good ratio, right? That shouldn't disqualify that vendor because of one bad experience you hear about. And I think it speaks to their ability for reconciliation. Like if there is conflict in the relationship, how did you heal that? You know, a lot of times that's where third stage comes in when there is an issue with a vendor or an issue with uh, a different provider or partner to see how they can potentially continue to work together. So sometimes those quote unquote bad references gives you the most valuable information around how did they make sure that they fixed it, right? An, an effective and mutually satisfying way to uh, to repair a breach in a relationship can actually lead to a much stronger relationship than you would have had without the breach. It's a great opportunity, providers, actually, to uh, to really show their character. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little bit um, and talk about retention of talent. So we kind of covered what is the current state? How can you fill that gap? Let's talk about how you get good talent and keep them within your organization. So can you provide some strategies around retention for our audience? Sure. Uh, that's... Uh... You know, having worked in consulting for almost 30 years and when, when you're always on the search for, for, for good talent, right, uh, that's something I've thought about a lot. Um, well, let's talk about money first, right? And, and the money isn't everything, but money is a big thing. And it's kind of delusional to pretend it isn't, right? Um, you need to recognize and reward your top performers in a meaningful way, not in a trivial way. Uh, there's a bigger difference in our industry, I think, between a star player, an A player, uh, and a C player than there is in a lot of other white-collar um, occupations. And, but I see a lot of organizations where HR and compensation policies do not allow uh, exceptional talent to be recognized the way it needs to be. Uh, and I, that's, in my experience, that's especially true of 
very talented people who are still in the upslope of their careers, right? Uh, people say in their late 20s to mid 30s, uh, somewhere in that range. They often find themselves 20, 30, $40,000 a year uh, below market value. Um, and those people, uh, they're not going to stay patient and while you dribble out little 5% raises to them every year, right? Uh, they're going to move on to another organization. It's, it's sad to say, but, you know, I, I've always said that it's always the next employer who pays you what you're worth. And that's very unfortunate. I don't understand why more businesses don't break that cycle. Um, in, in our business, as I said, a top performer, I don't mean somebody who's just competent or, you know, just pretty good at their job, but somebody who's genuinely excellent. Uh, they are worth several of the mediocrities you might be paying 10% less, right? Or even paying more <laughs> in some organizations. Uh, so if your company has these policies that limits compensation increases or, or just generally tie your hands and don't allow you to, to reward and compensate your top talent appropriately, you really don't have a right for to have hurt feelings when they move on to a better job. Um, beyond money, though, there, there's a lot of things to consider beyond money, of course. And um, I think it's important to recognize that people are different and people value different things. So there isn't really just one thing to do to ensure that uh, your talent doesn't leave. Right. There's uh, people, as I said, people value different things. Some of this goes without saying, I think, but it's important to provide a culture where people feel respected. Right. Where they feel valued. Um, I think it's also important to give people a sense of mission. Uh, the primary purpose of any organization is to make money, of course, right? But it, it, I would encourage you to make your company about more <laughs> than just making money. I, I think this is especially important to younger people in, in our business. From what I've observed, they want to have a sense of purpose and feel that their work actually matters in, in some way. Uh, some companies have seen give time off for their employees to perform charitable work, and that's great. Another idea might be to match to some degree their charitable contributions and kind of a 401k uh, kind of benefit. That might be nice. One cultural goal, I'd say, is to really try to avoid having a blame and shame based culture, um, particularly when it comes to younger professionals in our business. Um, it's important to provide an environment where they can make errors, right, where they can make mistakes. And uh, and you have to treat those mistakes as an opportunity for, for them to be openly discussed in the group as an opportunity for learning, uh, not for casting blame. That's how people grow and, and develop experience. Um, so that I think it's really important. Um, some obvious things, uh, flexible work schedules. Uh, and um, work arrangements are obviously pretty broadly popular, right? Most people like those. And one other thing I'd say with regard to recruiting, uh, you wouldn't think this would have an effect on retention once you already have employees, but it does. Uh, I talked about the importance of compensating your A players uh, before. A players like to work with other A players. And, and so it's very important not to compromise on your recruiting standards. And, and I've done this, I've made this mistake. When you're in a position where you have an open seat and you need to get it filled, right? You can be an eager buyer and, uh, and settle for kind of a mediocre candidate and, and hope that things work out, right? Really try to resist that. That's a big mistake. It, it actually, aside from having well, who's probably gonna be an unsuccessful employee on your staff, um, it diminishes your value proposition as an employer to your star talent. It's not special to work there anymore. Uh, because there are mediocrities now being brought into the organization. This is such good stuff, Fred. Absolutely. Um, I, th I think it's 
so important that you consider all of these different things. Yes, the last thing I'd say is, and this should be, this should come as uh, no surprise to anybody either. It kind of goes without saying, don't hire jerks. Don't hire people you have a good reason to believe are going to be toxic in your environment. Yeah, we should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it, it, jerks, uh, toxic people, cause turnover. They drive good people out of your organization. And if you do accidentally hire one, and it happens to all of us, I've done it more than once, uh, get rid of them as quickly as you can. Okay, that, that's basic uh, hiring advice from the Good to Great book uh, that was popular a few decades ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those are, so, I mean, some of them are, are so, um, they seem like common sense, but a lot of times they are missed within organizations and that A-team talent that you referenced, those things are incredibly important to them. Um, um, so I think that is is so critical to really understand that, go back to your basics, and and especially in a technical field. And I wonder if I could ask you, when it when we look at going into consulting or technical fields, We've seen an insurgence of bigger tech companies like Google or other areas actually take college or universities within their own internal um, pieces to build that competency in-house. If you, I know you have a child who is, you know, higher education age, what would be your recommendation to that generation to build some of those skills? Is the university track still kind of the best way to get that technical know-how or is actually going to the company and getting trained on a specialty going to be more popular and overall valuable? Gotcha. I have um, uh, pretty strong opinions on this. <laughs> um, so there's two questions. What do you need to do to break into the business and get hired? And what do you need to do to actually acquire skills? Um, I think we're going to see a trend where recruiters and HR folks generally, uh, they place less and less emphasis on uh, traditional credentials like higher education. Um, in our business, higher education is typically not very valuable in terms of teaching actual relevant skills that people use day to day in their jobs. Uh, so I think we're going to see increasing openness to less traditional educational paths like certification programs and boot camps and internships and things like that. Uh, to, to tell you a story about some computer science programs that uh, I've been broadly familiar with in the course of my career, I consulted once at a state university who actually taught their, uh, their computer science students Fortran. And uh, they taught them Fortran, and this was only 12 years ago or so. Fortran has been, you know, ancient for 30 years, right? It's been obsolete. Um, they taught them Fortran because they had internal systems that were written in Fortran and they needed the free student labor to maintain them. So what kind of a return on your tuition dollar is that, right? You're paying to be taught an obsolete skill so that you can provide free labor, right? Now, I'm sure not all uh, computer science uh, programs are quite that extreme in their uselessness, uh, but, um, but generally speaking, in my experience, they don't tend to teach very applicable skills that uh, young people can use immediately. Absolutely. I think that's 100% true. And it almost is on the students to really understand and evaluate their own education program when it more just used to be kind of more of a traditional path. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, a very interesting kind of trend that we'll see um, in, in the marketplace. 
Are there any other innovations or kind of unconventional solutions being implemented to kind of address this shortage that you've seen in your work? I I don't think we're doing it enough yet, but I guess I'll predict it becomes more popular. I think we'll be using nearshore resources. Um, we've had a lot of uh, several decades now of experience with farshore resources, right, from places like India and China. And I think it's fair the results have been mixed, uh, to use a polite adjective, Um uh, but using nearshore resources from places like Mexico and Costa Rica are particularly rich uh, sources of these, in, in, in my experience, uh, can be pretty advantageous. You know, the, the, the cost savings is not great, but you do gain other advantages in, in communications and uh, just the time zone alignment is, is useful right, uh, for a U.S. company. Um, even using resources in Canada uh, can be helpful uh, if the exchange rate, uh, the dollar exchange rate is broad enough. So that's one. I, I think we'll see more of that. Very cool. And then I know you had mentioned some kind of low code um, opportunities or solutions as well, um, kind of in our prep work. I'm really interested to hear more about that because obviously low code, no code is a huge trending piece when we talk about solutions for enterprise technology. But I've never really heard it talked about in kind of the labor shortage conversation. So I'm, I'm hoping you can share more insight around that. Sure. Uh, we've seen a number over many years, we've seen a number of technology come along that promise to sort of democratize development of solutions, right? They never really do, right? Uh, but what, now we have Microsoft's Power Platform as a low-code um, low solution platform, and I think it's here to stay. I, I think it will become the preferred means of developing uh, microsolutions and departmental applications moving forward. Now, Microsoft paints this vision of armies of uh, citizen developers, they call them, right? As civilians who are going to rise up from within business units and essentially become application developers. I, I don't buy it. It's, it's never, we've seen a lot of these technologies come down the road that promise to democratize development and they never do. But we're going to see some. There are going to be some people in those, in those business units who are going to have the aptitude and interest in doing this and they're going to. Uh, so that'll help a little bit on the margins. Also a little bit on the margins where you do need uh, IT professionals, developers to get involved and use um, uh, a power platform to develop solutions, it does offer a bit of a time to market advantage, right? You can develop solutions more quickly that way, so that'll free up some capacity. I don't think it's going to be a huge impact, but I think it will be some impact um, of, of using these low-code solutions. I can tell you that, you know, I early in my career, I was a software developer, and um, if I were starting my career today, I would definitely be becoming experts in Power Platform. I think it's going to be a big part of the solution portfolio moving forward. Interesting. And isn't that kind of Odoo's model um, a little bit too? Because they've not only created you know, the community of developers, but they're very impassioned mm -hmm. community um, of developers too, which we've seen that kind of like, you know, boost up onto the scene in the ERP marketplace. Do you, it sounds like you don't think that will happen with Microsoft. Is that correct? It's a hard one. I know. Yeah, no, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Um, the, the Odoo models, I think a it reminds me more of other open source communities and yeah. uh, sort of the, the the passion around that that you can you can harness. Uh, there's always some chaos in, in that too, uh, right? Uh, but but this isn't really that. Um, 
this is just a, a way to build solutions that is easier to adopt and use uh, and produce solutions more quickly. Um, again, they're not enterprise level solutions at this point, right? They're going to be smaller departmental solutions, the kind of things that never make it to the top of the priority list, actually, is what it's there to produce. Um, uh, so what I, what I don't think will happen is lots and lots and lots of citizen developers, people who never envisioned themselves to be IT folks, uh, suddenly becoming passionate and expert power platform developers. I just don't. I'm skeptical that that's going to happen. But as I said, there's going to be some uh, who, will, who will do that. And kind of that community-based, one of the trends I really wanted to ask you about was remote work and global talent. Obviously, we've seen a huge overhaul of what remote work looks like and global talent sourcing with the COVID-19 pandemic, how that kind of revolutionized the way we work. How does the shift towards remote work impact that IT labor market, and particularly accessing that talent that we're talking about is you know, in short supply? I think with regard to global talents, the, the, the work from home movements, um, I don't think it changed things a lot because they said we've been accessing global talents uh, for, for a few decades now. Um, one, of the, one of the trends I did see, though, was it did, allow, uh, it did allow organizations to expand their recruiting territory. A, a lot of my clients during the pandemic uh, traditionally had recruited only within their metropolitan area. And some of them were pretty remote and it was difficult to attract talent. Um, and they were suddenly able to recruit nationwide um, and offer remote positions. Um, of course, that's a tactic that's available to anybody, right? Uh, and it doesn't really increase the labor pool in the United States at all. It just lets you look further afield for your folks. About remote work generally, I think it's definitely here to stay as a much bigger part of our environment than it was uh, before the pandemic. There's been uh, some pushback on that, a bit of a counter-reformation, right, where, where some organizations are demanding folks be back in the office and, and so forth. But it's going to be difficult in our business, honestly. People who are still very talented and very in demand can afford to be choosy about their opportunities, and um, they can insist on remote positions if that's what they prefer. So I don't think we're ever going to go back to uh, where we were in 2019, where, you know, eight to five presence Monday to Friday in an office was the norm at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely an, an interesting piece that has to be match the DNA of the company or the department, those types of, of different things. Um, and I, I want to kind of round out our conversation with a future outlook. And for someone like me that is more of a business technologist, this makes me really excited um, for looking at what is the modern IT department. I recently wrote a blog here at Third Stage that said the modern IT department is dead. And of course, little clickbait there in the headline, <laughs> right? But it created a lot of conversation with our online community of what is the modern IT department going to look like in 2024. So I want to get your feedback on that. I don't know if there is one single uh, IT department of the future, actually. I think it's going to be uh, very varied and personalized to the needs of each organization. Some organizations are going to see uh, technology is more central to what they do day to day. And so they're going to want to keep more of it in house and invest more in it. Um, others are probably going to continue this trend of outsourcing it uh, to, to partners and vendors, but it isn't really core uh, to, uh, to, to what they do, or they, they don't want to necessarily make the investments in technology and people uh, to, 
to support it and exploit it. And there's been a trend, you know, in recent years uh, of the CIO and, and leadership in an IT organization generally being much more tightly integrated with the business and supporting the business's initiatives and objectives. I don't see that uh, reversing anytime soon. If anything, it'll be accelerating. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and I, I did a CIO panel um, at our EMEA Stratosphere event, which I'll um, shoot up a, a QR code and a link here. But basically, we had retired CIOs, and then we had younger CIOs. And one of our younger CIOs, um, he had a tie on, and I made a joke with him about, like, when you become a consultant, you don't have to wear a tie anymore. <laughs> And he said to me, he said, you know, I wear a tie to remind myself that I am a business leader, not just a technical leader. And I thought that was incredibly profound. So if you're looking for more information on kind of the modern CIO, I highly recommend that panel is one of my favorites in my career to moderate. All right. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Kyler. Great conversation. And uh, IT labor shortages are a real thing. So that's a great conversation. Uh, Thanks for leading us through that, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great conversation, you know, with someone who has as much experience in developing IT departments like Fred. And he really covered the need um, for, you know, students to identify what they want to do, but also for teams to understand how their technology and their requirements looks as a roadmap for internal competencies that they do need. So, Eric, Fred mentioned this concept of kind of rewarding and investing in your A-team project members or your A-team department leaders, utilizing them as a catalyst to recruiting other A-team department members because A-teamers like to play with A-teamers. And, you know, as someone who's kind of built and craft leadership teams, I thought I might bring that to you for your feedback. Yeah, it's a it's a great approach and uh, strategy and thought process too, because it you're right that you once you have one or two or a few AT members on the team, you're going to attract more of the AT members. And it's going to also create a certain amount of competition where people want to be part of that. And it's, it, people get more excited about being part of the part of the team. And, um, and obviously, you know, you're going to have the benefit of having a, a solid team, you know, by having more, more A-team players. It also shows too, it also sends a message to the rest of the organization that this project is really important. We've taken our best people um, some of our highest performers, some of the people that were the hardest to pull out of their day-to-day operations, we're involving them, engaging them in this project because it's so important. So it, there's a lot of upside benefit beyond just the recruiting that you're talking about too. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what Third Stage does um, is you know coming in and helping to not only identify that, but to kind of fill some of those seats. Some Sometimes our um, our project team will come in and actually help take some of that maintenance away, the heavy lifting, so that these top performers can really innovate and do their job with their new technology. Um, So because that can be hard to navigate as an organization. Uh, But great conversation with Fred. Always appreciate his insights. um, And what a great episode. We kind of covered a little bit of everything today. Yeah, all all expansive or all inclusive uh, episode here. A lot of a lot of stuff we covered. And uh, if, there, if this wasn't enough for you and you want to go look at other topics we've covered, you can always go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see all the past episodes. If you don't already subscribe on one of the platforms that we stream to, you can just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see it all, um, all the past episodes too. So thank you for being here today. Um, again, the show is every Wednesday, same time, same place at transformationgroundcontrol.com. show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent consulting firm that helps clients reach the third stage of digital transformation success. It's where Kyler and I, and also our guest, Fred, we're all part of the third stage consulting team. So if you'd like to learn more about how we can help your initiative be more successful, or even if you just want to chat about what we do, or you want to have an informal conversation about your project and 
what we might recommend to you, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. So hope you all have a great day. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.